thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I'd just be fascinated to find out why you actually entered the law. Um, well, for me, uh, it, it, it goes back uh, quite a long way. Um, I think, uh, dare I say, it, I used to have quite a lot of arguments uh, with my sister uh, <laughs> from quite a young age, an older sister, and uh, realised I was quite good at it. Um, I always harboured ambitions, in fact, to be a tennis player, professional tennis player. Um, but at some point, when I was about sort of 13 or 14, realised I wasn't quite good enough and needed to look at other areas. And in fact, again, looking to the inspiration my sister had on me, uh, she uh, was uh, looking towards the career in law, and that prompted me to look into uh, that direction. Was she older or younger? She was three years older. And you beat her? Um, I wouldn't say, no, <laughs> I didn't beat her. Um, she, uh, she wanted to be a solicitor, and in fact, uh, she developed uh, a brain tumour. Um, it was benign, but it required uh, quite extensive treatment. Um, and she found out that she had that brain tumour at the point that she was about to do law finals. Wow. Um, and she couldn't, she couldn't carry on uh, doing that. And because of that, that slightly inspired me. Initially, I went into it a little bit of a competitive edge, but thereafter, it was also in part... Because uh, I kind of wanted to carry on what she had started. Wow, that's incredible. So, 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 did did she? I mean, did she go into law at all, or? No, she didn't. I, the, the, the treatment wasn't much fun. Um, yeah. And uh, she didn't want to go into a career that was potentially quite stressful. And, Fair enough. Uh, because of that, she she didn't. She did various other things, uh, but nothing to do. Uh, with the law but you know I do look back to that and think you know I think it made it a lot easier for me in terms of me making that as, as a career choice because I kind of seen the path that she had taken the career kind of university choices and then uh, you know how things are developed after and I talked to her about the course and that sort of thing so I think it made it easier and also makes it easier if you have an older sibling who's done it before and so therefore you can look at that and think actually uh, okay that's something I can do if my sister can do it I can do it sort of type thing. But I mean, you're a QC. Was was the goal always to get to this kind of this peak, or or did you just go? Yes. Th- it was. I think I, I think it was. I mean, I think um, when I started out, I used to look at QCs with a degree of awe. Yeah. Um, particularly, occasionally you come across really the very best in the profession, and I still sometimes see them now. And and you just you know to hear a really masterful cross examination or a really fantastic closing speech uh and sometimes done with no notes whatsoever you you do sit back and and you sort of mentally applaud uh, what really? they've done because it, it's it's a real thing and for me that was always um an aspiration i don't think i ever particularly had strong aspirations to be a, a judge for me it was more i, I wanted to get the, the being a, the top type of advocate so, so what is a masterful cross-examination i mean what does that look like from your level what you know what blows you away when you see that? I think sometimes the, the best cross-examinations are obviously the, the most prepared cross-examinations, so the ones that, um, and they appear slightly effortless, but they get to where they need to get to. They get out the evidence that the, the advocate in question wants to get out. Um, and I, I always said the best advocates are the ones that you don't see coming. You, 
in my view, you, you encounter a range of different styles in terms of advocacy. You obviously can have sometimes very aggressive, sometimes very quiet, but sometimes, the in my view, the best advocates are the other ones, as I say, that you don't see them coming. The cross-examination is very well done. Uh, it's not overly aggressive. It's, it just gets to the point and it gets out the information that that advocate needs for their case. When you're on the other side and you see someone doing something like that, that masterfully, do you kind of see it coming and there's nothing you can do? Or, you know, is there panic on the other side? You're scrabbling around for information or, or are they so far ahead sometimes? Um, I hope it's not panic because hopefully you've kind of tactically um, prepared for it. But um, you, you do you do mentally applaud just as it, at the same time, dare I say, that if you if you hear someone and they're not necessarily taking points that they could take, yeah. uh, again, you're sort of mentally thinking, OK, that's a point you potentially could have made there and have chosen for whatever reason not to take it. So I think if you, for, that, for my part, if I'm here, so if i against somebody who's very good, personally speaking, I, I sit back and I mentally applaud them because I think yeah, that's, that's really great to see. You're, you're really doing your job. And it's not, I think in cases, uh, you know, in, in cases generally, you know, my job is is to present the evidence in the best light. And if I see somebody else doing that, then I, I have admiration for that. But when you were a youngster, do you, did you ever think, I don't know if I can do that? Or did you think, well, actually, no, if I keep going, maybe I could? Did you ever think you'd um, get to that in level terms... in the profession? Did you ever think it was too far off a dream? Or did you, did you feel that... Oh, yeah, very much so. Really? I, I think, and I think, I think, I think all really good advocates always have moments of doubt. I think, you know, I think my view is that being uh, humble and uh, having doubt is actually kind of what inspires you on to, to, to reach the next level. Um, and so, yes, you know, you have, I think you have doubts, uh, whatever stage uh, that you're at, you know, there's always there's always a more difficult hearing that you can do. You can be arguing at a very difficult point in the Court of, court of Appeal. Um, and that, you know, might be the next stage or even in the Supreme Court, there's always another level that you may have to go to. And, and so it, it's not so much doubts as to your own ability. It's more it just wanting, you know, that you can perform, but wanting to make sure that you do perform um, and things don't go. It's not a car crash. In one case, you read 350,000 documents. Is that right? I reviewed, yes, mm-hmm. over a couple of years, but yes. That's a lot of documents. <laughs> so it is a lot of documents, but of course, if you don't carry out that effective review process, then the case as it was, I was prosecuting case, and if you don't carry out that process, then then, then the prosecution may fail. And so it was an entirely necessary uh, part of the process. But, you know, I was um, one of a team uh, and... Um, we, you know, we reviewed at stages where we were at. So it was kind of quite methodical, but it was necessary. And because of that, and because the defence teams in that case knew what we were doing um, and, and the way we gave regular updates, then there was confidence in the process that to some extent that their clients' cases were being protected through the medium of prosecution counsel. But, but how do you even build your sort of ability to consume that amount of, of information? You have obviously just a general knowledge of, of the case as a whole, and you, as you do, as you review the case, any large case, you build up a sort of incremental understanding. So I think, you know, a lot of the time, it is you do have to have this ability, I think, to be able to absorb a one case at one particular point, command all of that knowledge, 
but a, something, a subsequent point we have to get rid of all of that knowledge and then move on to the next case. It is quite a difficult exercise. So how do you carve up your day then if, you, if you're in the court, but you've also got to look at all this work? I mean, do you have a... Uh, when do you go to bed, basically? Well, it's, it's a, it can be a long day. I mean, tri- trials, um, you know, your, your average day, I would normally start at around six, uh, probably be at, you know, looking at emails by about 6.30, um, and then eventually sort of getting off to court, make sure you're at court in good time, sort of 8.39, you then do a full court day, you're then making your way home, um, and then probably, you know, certainly doing trials, back on doing emails, work doing court for next progress, probably finishing at about, yeah, 11, 11.30. So it's a long, you know, long trial, particularly if you're doing trials at the same time as, as working other cases, it, it's it's really quite hard. Is it, I mean, can you, can you ever be properly prepared given that workload can you ever can it ever be crisp i think so because what's because these might for my personal thing the case the cases are quite large so i normally have a period of say two to three months preparation and then go into a large case and then subsequently then you have another another period of preparation and so i i I like to think i'm always prepared for my cases i think the prospect of not being prepared is, is utterly terrifying um, and I think, you know, if you are well prepared, then then the case itself is far less stressful. Um, but, you know, when you are um, doing, as I say, trials, as well as ongoing queries in relation to other cases that are going on at the same time, which inevitably arise, it's long days and it's and it's hard days. And, you know, that's in addition to obviously preparing for the trial you're in at that moment. I mean, so you would have made sacrifices in your life for this, obviously, mainly because of time. Um, are you yes. are you happy with those sacrifices? Because it must be weekends. And... It's, it's a constant question mm. for me in terms of, but you know, I mean, I have a I have a, I have a relatively young family. Uh, my wife uh, is was well, a busy practitioner working as a barrister, and uh, you know, we are. It, it's it's very very busy, and of course, inevitably, the one thing that is the most precious, precious commodity is, is time. So yes, there are sacrifices. That, that one makes. I think I rediscovered a degree of balance, though, when I had this ability to, when the, when the trials became longer and the preparation time became longer, because the nemesis part of that preparation time, you do have more time, you know, to do things like the school run when you're preparing for cases and then work around that. Uh, but certainly during trial times, I think my family regretfully got used to the fact that, you know, during those times, daddy is really, you know, working hard and there's not a lot of time around the edges. And it involves, inevitably, I'm afraid, working at weekends. And I think there came, for me, certainly more recently, a sort of realisation that actually I was slightly losing the work-life balance. And uh, it was more importantly, you know, I had to readdress some of those other areas to make sure that the work didn't become too dominant. But do you feel that your, or, or people of your level are, it's a case where if you weren't doing that, you might be kicking your heels a bit? I mean, may, is it a personality thing, do you think? I think a lot of barristers, we're kind of like actors, aren't we, that we worry um, if we don't have uh, enough work. We worry when we do have too much work. So I'm not sure they're <laughs> a particularly happy medium. And I think it's, it, it's, it is a stressful profession because what you're doing is inherently stressful. Hmm. But I also think on a day-to-day uh, basis, you know, you don't have a regular income. And so that you worry about getting the work in and you worry about... Uh, you know, if the if the work doesn't, how you're going to survive financially? I mean, you know, for, I've been very fortunate in terms of the cases, and, and generally the work has come in. 
but you don't you always have that fear and that's not um you know coming into this profession i think you have to have the ability to be able to deal with stress both from what you're doing on a daily basis but also the, the uncertainties around the profession how do you deal with the stress i mean is it just something uh uh maybe an ability you build over time or do you have like techniques or how, how do I, think you... it, I think i think i think there's a few things you do uh you do learn to deal with it things certain certain as soon as you get more experience certain hearings become less stressful i think preparation also makes things far less stressful so if you know the way of hearing so i try to reduce a lot of my stuff to to writing in advance of hearing so if you know where things are going that feels a lot less stressful. I think um, trying to do as much exercise as one can um, it inevitably helps to reduce stress levels. But I mean, you know, there is there's no getting away from it. There's a degree of stress in what we do. But what did you think you got pupillage because the pupillage interview process was was pretty grueling. I mean, you think you could make 12, 12 um, applications, and I think I immediately got turned down by about at least half of them without even a, some with just a, some, no acknowledgement whatsoever you just found out through the system and some deigned to write a letter to you and then some uh, invited you into an interview but even the interviews weren't particularly relaxing I think I got invited to about three or four interviews and in fact ended up with with two offers and I was extremely lucky but I mean I think it, it wasn't a it's not a it wasn't a pleasant experience it was, certainly wasn't plain sailing for me and that was a bit of a shock because uh, when I'd finished um, uh, when I finished Oxford, I'd applied to, in fact, some commercial firms and I'd done some work placements uh, while there. I'd applied at the end of that at that time, but I wasn't quite sure. Um, and I remember having a conversation, quite a vivid conversation with a sort of a sister who'd been there sort of about 10 years. And he said to me, sort of over a beer, well, maybe, look, I make quite a lot of money. I make a decent income, uh, but I'm really bored. Um, and uh, I'm not inspired by what I do. And there was another uh, person there who's on one of these summer secondments and chap called Simon Webster. And he, he and I started talking probably the same on the same bar, the same the same pint of beer. That he was going to go and have a look at a few barristers' chambers. And that um, after that conversation, I thought, right, I'll give that a go. And I went and did a few mini pupillages, and I did some stuff in court. And I thought, okay, this is this for me is quite inspiring. Um, I think my dad thought I was mad because I got a number of job offers from these commercial firms all offering nice salaries and benefits. And I said, no, 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 thanks very much. But I'm going to go off to bar school with no no offers whatsoever um, and take my and get a loan and uh, pay for myself. And, and that was quite, a, I think, as I say, I think he thought I was crazy. But um, in the end, it's worked out. But why why do you think that solicitor was bored? Uh, what, 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 what was he saying, basically? I think he was saying, I mean, in essence, he was saying, I, I'm making a good living of what I'm doing. But actually, uh, I think he was working from, from recollection. I think he was working in mergers and acquisitions. And for him, um, he was just not finding it um, quite as inspiring as potentially he thought a career in the law would have been. Mm. Um, and um, and for me, you know, I think relatively impressionable. Uh, that was, you know, quite a strong statement. And I think also it wasn't just that. It was also coupled with, you know, having my own experience looking at many people. I did a, a marshalling experience where you go and sit uh, with a judge um, and you go into hearings. You sit with them alongside them in court and uh, with, a, with a judge down in Southampton. And I saw 
um, a number of Crown Court trials. And I remember the one in particular, there was an, one advocate who was absolutely fantastic. And you saw, you know, the, the case started and you thought uh, his client uh, was overwhelmingly guilty. But by the end, because of the way he developed everything, uh, he really placed real doubts, uh, certainly in my mind, about the, the guilt of his client and, and therefore, and ultimately, his client was acquitted. And I was like, OK, that's, you know, that's, that's quite inspiring to see that. So, so I think the other thing, uh, I think the other thing also, just just going on from please. that, the other thing I also did, uh, which you uh, which you may be aware of, is I went and did uh, death row cases. Yes. Um, in the in the United States, and I think that for me again was something that I thought I, I want to be a trial advocate. Yes. Yeah, so please tell me about that. I mean, that, that, you know, that's a big thing to do. Uh, I mean, you, it's at the beginning of your career, wasn't it? It was right at the start. Yes. So. And I went out for about a year to, uh, initially went to New Orleans. There was a gentleman there who's now since come back called Clive Stafford-Smith. Um, and I worked out there with a lawyer called Dana Lynn Reeser. She uh, was doing death row cases in uh, Texas. And it really opened my eyes to the criminal justice system. I qualified, I had a mind that I might actually end up staying out there doing those types of cases. Um, but the cases were, um, some of them really quite difficult uh, to deal with. Uh, multiple murders. Uh, one case we did involving a thing um, in uh, a Taco Bell. So really kind of quite, and also dealing with um, murders of, of children. And, uh, and so really seeing the extremes of the criminal justice system as it was over there. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things I came back, when I came back over here, it was a recognition, certainly when you see, certainly in this country, that the most serious crimes are generally represented, those individuals are represented by the most proficient, the most able advocates. And of course, that is the way it should be. And that, I'm afraid to say, is not what happens over there. And so his ties, um, mission over there was to set up, he set up something called the Louisiana State Assistance Centre, which was designed to deal with these cases where lawyers had fallen asleep during trial, lawyers had been, you know, just out of law school and plainly not capable of dealing with a, with a capital murder case. Wow. Um, and, and it was, it was, um, it was pretty inspiring. I was there and they had a number of students from Harvard, from uh, Columbia, and uh, and I had there were some memorable moments. I think on one occasion I was sent out to to take a statement from the wife of a drug dealer, and uh, while there the drug dealer's husband had come home and had proceeded to chase me down the street. Based <laughs> on that. Oh my god! Um, and then yeah, and then had proceeded to destroy my rental vehicle. Uh, and uh, and um, yeah, and then I, I was so I was really quite frightened. So I think I moved hotels a couple of times that night uh, because I was scared that they were going to find out where I was. So um, so real kind of exposure and going up to the Louisiana State Prison and seeing when you went in there, when you drove in, uh, a very large number, mainly black men in hoop shirts with shovels digging. Um, in, in sort of chain gangs with, sensibly, I'm afraid to say, uh, white policemen sitting there on horseback, uh, prison guards, uh, standing over there, and you, you sort of you did wonder what kind of century yeah. you were in at that point. And then you go up to the death row 
um, you, you drive past old Sparky, which is the old former um, execution chamber on the left. Wow. And then you would go and see these inmates in their in their cells, and they were in six by six foot cells. Uh, most of them didn't get let out during the day, and it, it was really quite barbaric. That that right, I don't know how people don't go mad in those cells. They did, and in fact, what they used to have, they used to have um, to feed themselves. They would have um, these little metal kind of bowls, effectively, and uh, they would bang on the uh, outside of the metal bars so not only were you a lot of these people in these tiny tiny cells there was also in in something that's louisiana so extremely hot extremely humid for most of the year but people would also bang on the metal bars with their with their metal bowls so the noise so it wasn't just that you're in there 24 7 the noise was constant and extremely loud um and and you know within these cells you had people with mental health issues um, and, uh, you know, accused of really the most, some of the most hideous crimes. Um, and it was quite, it was, yeah, it was a, you know, someone who'd sort of come from quite a different environment that was quite, it was quite initially when you first go, it's quite a shock. And so some of the humour, certainly among the lawyers there, was quite, was inevitably quite dark. But yeah. that's the only way I think, you know, you can deal with what was going on um, over there. It does, to be honest with you, it does sound like hell. Like a yeah, depiction of. I think, I think. I mean. I think if you get caught up in the wheels of the criminal justice system in the, in the states, I'm not having a general dig at the, at the system over there, but I think if you do get caught up in those system in that system, I mean, one of the individuals we've represented over there, I think his father and his uncle have both been on death row. Wow. Um, he by he, you know, and he was pigeonholed as somebody who was a, you know, by effectively by his DNA that he was going to be a. Um, uh, you know, end up on death because Sophocles and tragedy. He he ended up there, um, and he, he'd in fact been involved in other other offences, and in fact that had led to a fight with the prison guard, and, and the prison guard had died, and that's why he was sitting on death row. Uh, but you know, the, the whole culture is very different. So you would go around and you would you would see uh, posters for election for judges saying, "Vote for me." Um, you know, I've dealt severely with this many people this year. Um, and in addition, you know, you'd be when you'd be driving up to the prison, you know, for for, for example, I was one of our clients unfortunately was executed, and we would drive to prison on the radio. You have these shock jock radio uh, and people calling in and, and really being quite vehement and about your client, and that again was was very very shocking. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, uh, I'd be quite disturbed if I. If I saw any of that, I mean, I, I'm sure I get through it and try and be manly, etc. But that's quite something to see and experience. It's quite something to see, and also at a young age, relatively, you know, comparatively young age. It's, you know, when you're 23, 24, you think you're pretty worldly wise and pretty experienced. Yeah. It, was, it was quite something, and I think I realised after about six months there that I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't make a career of that because it was just, you know, you'd have pretty dark dreams because. The stuff that you were dealing with was was pretty horrific, and and also the, the entire environment was creation of the people there who had set up that unit. In fact, he had sued the Louisiana state government, uh, and they the government had been forced into making them an award of some of the money, which had enabled them to set up this appeal centre. And they'd been quite successful, in particularly in relation to DNA appeals. 
of overturning convictions where people have been subsequently exonerated because DNA proved that they weren't there or whatever the case may be. So for what they were doing at that time and, and, and currently, and in fact, there is now a scheme that you can go out there, university students can, can go out. It wasn't so formalised when I did it about 20, 25 years ago, but certainly I think there is now something more formal that can pursue. But do you, do you think that creates a kind of a baseline of horror for you, perhaps, as a young man? So, you know, there's some kind of measuring stick. I mean, I can't imagine... That's almost unfathomable in in the UK. That idea. Yeah, I think I, th- I think it is. I remember um, I remember one case that we did when I was out there, and um, it was in fact it was, a, it was a, the conviction had been overturned, and uh, it was a new so it was a retrial, and um, we I certainly didn't, but the lawyers who were in charge, although I did have rights, the lawyers went and spoke to. <laughs> The, law, the, the, the the district attorney was prosecuting the case, and uh, they said that the guilty and uh, the prospect of uh, uh, life uh, without parole as a sentence. And and the prosecutor uh, turned around and he said, "The only thing I want to talk about with you is the amount of voltage I'm going to put through your client." So that time, the electric chair wasn't operating; it was still it was death by lethal injection, but. The sentiment was clear. They're kind of quite dogged uh, uh, prosecutors. And in fact, um, approximately three or four years later, I went out with the South East Bar Mess. They run a scheme where you can go and do um, an advocacy course. It takes about a week to two weeks uh, in Florida. And uh, when we arrived, uh, there is this real separation, unlike the English Bar, where you frequently get people who prosecute and defend. But over there, we had... We walked into this large auditorium, say, I think it was about five Brits, um, and we sat down in the middle and all the prosecutors sat on the left side of the auditorium, these junior prosecutors on the left side, and all the state, the public defenders sat on the right and they wouldn't come and sit next to each other. Um, really? And it was that, you know, even at, and it was absurd, you know, even at a relatively young age. Of course, by the end of the week, uh, where people had sort of, you know, been doing classes together and advocacy together and obviously inevitably having a few beers afterwards, uh, the, the the separation you know between the sides you know people have become friends and 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 the parties have had you know developed friendships but notwithstanding at the time it was really quite partisan and again that was quite shocking to see and it's actually a good thing I think uh, within our system that that, that barristers do prosecute and I think some people find that quite hard to understand but actually it gives you a degree of insight if you prosecute and it gives you a degree of insight in terms of what's going on the defence side of things. And equally, if you if you defend, then you can understand the pressure sometimes that prosecutors are under. Is there a case in your career so far that, you know, you felt really defined you? That was the moment where you you found your own voice, your own kind of approach. It all kind of came together. I think more recently, um, I was doing a case... Um, at the Central Criminal Court, and I was prosecuting a number of silks uh, QCs, really good QCs. And um, I was at the Central Criminal Court, and I was cross-examining uh, the main defendant. And I think at that point, there was a sort of realisation uh, that uh, I might be OK at this. Um, I think... But that's 30 um, years in or something. That's years in. I think, I think when you are... Um, I mean, I think there are, there are some cases that I did which were kind of quite defining in terms of, because even if you did cases which were bad cases, I always think you learn from them. Um, and I think that's, imp- and I, I, you know, I think people always talk about you know, learning lessons, et cetera. But actually, you, you know, sometimes these cases, they do 
you know they kind of a real impact on you and you do learn from them and and that makes you um you know it, it, it molds you in terms of the way that you go about things but if you lose a case i mean do you is it normal to be down in the mouth or do you think well i was playing man united that day and everyone understands that um no i think um i think over the years i think sometimes advocacy i think Certainly, I remember the early advocacy text I read that advocacy makes about 10% difference. I think it's probably a bit more than that. Uh, but certain times, the evidence is the evidence. Um, so my view is, is that um, I never like to think that, you know, there are some advocates you do who are, who are potentially more able than other advocates. But I don't really so much judge the advocate. I kind of really judge what the case is. And sometimes, you know, although you believe in your case and it's been brought for the right reasons or you're defending the case and you're defending it for the right reasons or whatever the case may be, um, you, you you can't get away from the facts. And, and that may mean that you lose or, or that you may be successful. Um, I think what I try to do is obviously just do it to the best of my ability and, and hope that's, uh, and, you know, and, and as I say, the key for me is preparation, um, knowing where, hopefully knowing as best way you can where the case is going. Have you ever had any moments of kind of despair where you've thought, you know, oh, that's awful, it's going to look really reflect badly on me, or, or have you given it your best shot so it doesn't matter? Um, it, it, there was a case I did um, with somebody who was leading me who um, who I didn't get on with and uh, would, would be really quite unpleasant. And uh, I was being led in the case. And uh, I think it was probably evident to everybody on the other side that I wasn't having a particularly happy time and uh, would, uh, you know, sometimes criticise me openly in court, but then say, well, look, I, as, as someone who's leading the team, I'll take responsibility for his mistakes. And of course, you know, he was leading the team, and so I would just sit there silently actually thinking, I'm not sure if I have made a mistake. <laughs> and so that was quite career for me. It was also quite damaging, because when you're certainly, it was relatively early on, and at that stage, you know, the views of your peers do you know, do influence, as with any profession, I would think. And, uh, you know, this occasional sort of ritual of emulation that was taking place uh, wasn't, you know, and it, it wasn't wasn't great for me and it, was, and it was quite damaging. And it actually took a little time to recover from it afterwards. I was then led by another QC who was an entirely different kettle of fish. And, um, and, and, because, of, and because of that, um, I... Um, she rebuilt my confidence and that was i think she could see that i'd had a rough time and, and that was quite instrumental um, she was quite instrumental in sort of building me back up again and for me personally going forward i would i sort of made a mental note because ultimately i then became you know that person who then led the team in a number of prosecutions and i'd made a kind of mental note you know to to, to remember how that felt and to make sure, hopefully, I don't know, some of my teachers may disagree, but hopefully to, um, you know, to treat people properly, to treat people with respect. Uh, and that's really, and, and, and to basically act in a kindly manner, because I think in this, I think in this world, you know, many people, and they may not, it may not be evident when you're talking to them, but have, you know, things going on in their personal lives and may have crosses to bear. And I think, um, you, you know, you may need to make due allowance, even though they may not tell you that. How did it feel taking silk? There must have been a complete vindication. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> I mean, I have to say, it was a, it was a bit of a surreal moment because um, ours was probably the last public ceremony um, that, uh, <laughs> that happened. It was on the sixteenth of March, 
Um, and in some ways, oh, wow. it was it was a little bit bittersweet in that um, uh, my son, in fact, didn't have coronavirus. But at the time, we, he'd had a few symptoms, about cold, a little bit of a cough. And so, in fact, uh, my wife wasn't able to come with me to the ceremony. So I took my daughter instead. And so they had to, my son and my wife actually drove past in the car and saw me in my gown. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So then my parents, you know, decided to take the risk and they and they came and saw me. But it, and it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. And it was, a, it's a fantastic day. And it does feel, you know, because you think back of some of the cases that you've done and it does feel um, not so much of vindication, but just sort of a degree of recognition that actually you're, you're relatively proficient at what you do. I mean, this is as an outsider looking in, but, you know, if 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 someone becomes a QC, you you know, if you were to be hit by a bolt of lightning, you, at least in the final moments, you could say, well, I became a QC, so it's OK. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think it, it, it was great. It was it was quite surreal afterwards in the sense that um, I, I went out for some uh, an afternoon tea, celebratory afternoon tea with with my parents and we went into the restaurant and I think there was one of the family where someone had also taken certain in Medi QC and we, we were a large restaurant, we were two tables. And and I remember speaking to the waiter and he said, yeah, yeah, you're the last things we've got, the whole place is shutting down um, tomorrow. So it slightly felt like the whole world was shutting down and this was the last thing that was going to happen. Um, and, and even now, occasionally, because I've, I've done, you know, a few remote hearings, but we're not wearing wig and gown for, for remote hearings unless you go to the Court of Appeal. So I haven't been in the Court of Appeal since then. So I've yet actually had the opportunity to wear uh, my silk gown. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that uh, first opportunity. Uh, obviously, things need to take you know, the time that they need to take, but I'm looking forward to that moment. So I suppose my, my, my final, well, final two questions. Um... If you can go back in time and, and speak to that younger self, uh, either at law school or before, what kind of advice would you give the younger you? I think two things. I think um, I would say to him, look, you need to acknowledge that the, the profession that you're going to is, I hope this doesn't come across too strong, but it's extremely stressful. And I think it's really important the whole time to, to keep that work-life balance. So because what you're doing is stressful, you need to exercise probably as much as you can. You need to take, it sounds ridiculous, but you need to take holidays. That doesn't necessarily mean taking holidays abroad. It means taking, uh, you know, a, a week off, um, you know, here and there. The other thing I think I would mention is that it's important to to be kind, to, you know, when you're dealing with your fellow professionals. But staff, my junior and staff trial said he felt a little bit unwell. And so I said to him, well, let's go home. I don't need you right now. Um, and he said, no, no, I, I need to carry on to my list. We were about two weeks into the case and I had to go to the Court of Appeal uh, for a day. And that takes priority for, over a Crown Court hearing. And I left him for the day. And during the course of the day, he was reading statements to the jury. And uh, he wasn't, uh, he afterwards, I, I had heard from the counsel, he was struggling a little bit to read some of these statements, which I know some of the, some of the counsel thought was a little bit unusual. And anyway, that evening, uh, he became very unwell. Uh, he managed to get himself onto a train to get himself home. And uh, he uh, passed out uh, on the way home and was subsequently taken off the train by ambulance and was taken to a hospital. Um, and we, I, I got a call from his wife quite late that night saying, where is he? You know, and I was like, what do you mean, where is he? He's been hoping that he'd been uh, at the pub 
um, you know, or, 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 or you know, there'd be some sort of explanation, and uh, and he wasn't. And in fact, we ended up having to get the court open in the middle of the night with the resident judge on the telephone at about one or two o'clock in the morning. So maybe he'd had, you know, been unwell at court, and we didn't know what had happened to him. And eventually, calls went out, and eventually, this hospital. And I think after that. I kind of realised that actually it had quite a severe effect on me. And I think after that, I think, you know, I, I appreciated that actually fundamentally the most important thing is people's health. Um, and so therefore, and I think, so therefore, I think if you treat people, you know, with kindness and, and respect, but also, you know, recognise that what you're doing is stressful. And um, I think so that, so those for me, the two things, as my younger self, so a rather long explanation, but the two things I would say is one, you know, look after yourselves, be aware of the stress, but more importantly, as you go through the profession, try to be, that sounds a bit, you know, wishy-washy, but actually acknowledge the fact that, you know, actually being approachable, kind, treating people with respect actually is really important. And I think in my younger years, perhaps I could have done a bit more of that. And I suppose finally, what does the, you know, the abstraction of the world's greatest lawyer, what, what would that mean to you or the world's greatest barrister? I think for me, it's the barrister that you don't see that you don't see coming. The barrister who is extremely well prepared, is extremely pleasant to deal with, um, and does a really, really good job in terms of you know the way they present the case, the way they cross-examine, the way they deal with you. For me, that you know that as an advocate, that is you're presenting your client's case in the best possible light. So much of your time; it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Take care.